the Lord provided Peter for Paul. And then later we're going to see how the Lord provided Paul for Peter. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, Nikki, we're going to continue Paul's defense of his apostleship as recorded in the first 10 verses of Galatians 2. Now, because Paul had not been one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and because he'd been as one abnormally born, as he put it in 1 Corinthians 15, that he was the last apostle to see the risen Christ and to be appointed by the Lord Jesus as an apostle, because of all this, he came under continuing criticism. So, Paul has already condemned anyone, including himself, if they teach another gospel— And today, he's going to explain more fully how we can all know that the gospel he preached was the one revealed to him by God. Now, we received an email this week from a former Adventist, his name is Verl Streifling, who's well-versed in the biblical languages. He shared the Greek word Paul used to describe another gospel. Here's the essence of what he said. Paul used the Greek word heteros when he referred to a different gospel, to another Jesus, and to another spirit. This word heteros means another of a different quality or something that's fundamentally different from another. Now, it might help to think about heteros as the prefix for our word heterosexual. Males and females are qualitatively fundamentally different from each other. So, when Paul condemns another gospel or a different gospel, he is referring to anything posing as the gospel, which is actually fundamentally unlike the gospel. This heteros gospel, which Paul condemns in this letter, is the teaching that Christians must obey the terms of the Mosaic law. This teaching is not the gospel. In today's passage, Paul explains the treachery of the false brothers who tried to undermine his ministry, and he tells us how the apostles in Jerusalem affirmed that what he taught was indeed the truth. Before we look at the text, though, I want to remind you that we love your emails. You may write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can also go to proclamationmagazine.org and find our online magazines and articles, links to this podcast, links to our YouTube channel. There's also a donate tab on the site where you may participate in supporting this ministry of bringing the gospel to Adventists and of helping former Adventists become grounded in a biblical worldview. Thank you so much for your support, and thank you also for following us on Facebook and Instagram and for giving us five-star reviews when you do, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, Nikki, I have a question for you. All right. As an Adventist, what did you think it meant that Paul had liberty that false brothers were trying to destroy by bringing him and those he taught into bondage? What was that liberty? You know, I really didn't know. and. So many things in the New Testament that I reflect on and go, hey, I didn't really know about that. I just kind of read past as an Adventist, but this one I didn't. The idea that Christians had freedom, a specific freedom, didn't make sense to me. I didn't quite Mm -hmm. understand that. I think I would try to interpret it as, well, 
now he made a way for us to follow him and keep the law by the power of his spirit. And so we've been kind of freed to do that, but I didn't know what to do with it. I really didn't. What about you? I don't remember. Okay. You know, like so much of this book so far, I don't remember what I thought. It didn't make sense to me. And I remember the general overarching impression I had of Galatians was basically, you don't have to be circumcised anymore. So, you know, cut that out. Okay. So you connected that freedom to freedom from circumcision? I think so. And maybe the sacrificial system? Maybe. Maybe. I don't actually know what I thought about that liberty that was being threatened. So it used to make me think of the verse uh, where it says, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And that was not in the context of circumcision. Right. So I knew there was some kind of overarching freedom. I just didn't know what it was. Yeah, I didn't either. And I knew that there was some kind of overarching freedom as well, but I couldn't have explained it. And I probably would have brought the conversation back around to circumcision. It it reminds me of something you said in our last podcast about somebody that has contacted you who's been studying Galatians and working their way out of Adventism. And that this person said, you know, I'm at chapter two and um, Sabbath hasn't been mentioned yet. Mm -hmm. I believe I remember you saying she was noticing that it was about circumcision. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I was. It's like, okay, I see that. It didn't strike me as a monumentally, fundamentally earth-shattering thing that Paul was doing, but I could sure see his anger. But we were pre-programmed not to see the Sabbath. Yeah. We were pre-programmed to separate all of that. And it's very systematic now that we've gone through that. 28 Mm -hmm. Fundamental Beliefs on the podcast, I can see that we are predisposed to ideas that prevent us from seeing the truth in Scripture. Yes. I am struck more and more, Nikki, by, again, I've said this before, but the fact that Adventism, like Satan in the wilderness, like the serpent in the garden, Adventism uses the Word of God to deceive us. Mm-hmm. Out of context, slightly redefined meanings. I, I Sometimes I call it recombinant scripture. A little word from here and a little word from there. Put mm-hmm. them together and you get a whole new idea. But Adventists make it sound like, see, it's all in the Bible. Well, and didn't Ellen White say here a little, there a little? She did. Like that was a positive thing. That's how you're supposed to study. But I the, learned it that way. The context of that verse in the Bible is that it was a curse. Absolutely. Israel was being warned that because of their unbelief and apostasy, they were going to be taken into exile where they would hear people who were not speaking words they could understand. And the word of God would be to them like, here a little, there a little, you know, a phrase here, a phrase there. They wouldn't even know what it meant or what it said. That was a curse. It was a consequence for their unbelief. And Ellen used that as a directive for how to study the Bible. It's so offensive to me now. I just kind of feel emotional about it. It's very upsetting. So I didn't really know what the liberty was. Didn't know how to deal with that. So today we are going to look at what Paul says about these false teachers that came and upset him and the brothers. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And before we talk about it, Nikki, would you read that passage for us, please? Sure. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. 
But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So I have often found this passage to be confusing in terms of time. When did what happen? Was this related to the Council of Jerusalem when he goes up to Jerusalem? Was this the journey in Acts 15 when they had the Council of Jerusalem? Was this the trip to Jerusalem in Acts 11 where there was a collection taken up and given to the saints in Jerusalem? And I've always found myself confused by this. And to be really honest, I don't think anybody really knows. Because in researching this, I checked in with both S. Lewis Johnson and with J. Vernon McGee, and they differ. S. Lewis Johnson thinks that Paul is talking about the Acts 11 trip to Jerusalem, and J. Vernon McGee is quite certain it was the council to Jerusalem in Acts 15. So I say it doesn't really matter. Whatever the case, we know that there was a time after Paul's conversion, apparently 14 years later, this 14 years can be understood to be after his conversion, that he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus because he had a revelation. What does that suggest? God clearly told him to go. And, you know, I was confused too about when this happened. But when I saw that he took Barnabas and Titus with him, I saw, okay, this is after he's begun his ministry. He's exactly. been doing ministry because he took Barnabas with him. Yes. We've already met Titus now and he's taken him with him. Mm-hmm. And so he has been running. He, yeah. he said so that he can make sure that he didn't run in vain. He has been running. He has been in ministry. And at some point, God sent him back to Cephas, mm-hmm. who he'd already met. We found out last week. Yeah. He'd spent two weeks with him. Right. Back to Cephas to submit to him the gospel he'd been preaching. And it's interesting that this comes after they've already encountered these people who were putting pressure on the body of Christ to be circumcised. So there was something motivating this. I agree. I think it's interesting, too, um, to understand why Barnabas and Titus were significant. Thinking back to our long trek through the book of Acts and our (laughs) FF studies, do you remember who Barnabas was? He was the son of encouragement. He was. He shows up at the very end of Acts 4, right before that shocking story of Ananias and Sapphira. Mm -hmm. So what tribe of Israel was he from? He was a Levite. Which is really interesting because he was also from the island of Cyprus. So somewhere in all the diaspora of the Jews being scattered in the Roman Empire, Barnabas's family ended up on Cyprus. And what I think is really interesting about this, it's clearly in the post-exilic period, because 
under the law of Moses, Levites were not allowed to own property. They were allotted certain cities among the tribes of Judah where they lived, but the Lord was their inheritance. So when we meet Barnabas at the end of Acts 4, he is a Levite from Cyprus, and he's notable because he has sold a large parcel of land on Cyprus, and he's donated the money to the early church. And he had to own land to do that. So it's really interesting, whatever the breakdown of the Jewish culture had been and the system of the tribes and all that, there was something that had happened. But he was a Levite, and he was the son of encouragement. That was what his name, Barnabas, meant. Now, the other interesting thing, besides that he took Barnabas, was that he took Titus. Now, Titus was a young man, and we learn as we read through the epistles in the New Testament in general that Paul had two young men that he taught in a special way that were sort of his protégés. They were Titus and Timothy. And kind of much is made of them in the New Testament because they represented two different people groups. Now, Timothy, if we recall, was raised by a Jewish mother and grandmother. He had a Greek father. So, because his father was Greek, he had not been circumcised, but his mother and grandmother were Jewish. And it was the mother's side that gives the Jewish lineage to a child, the Jewish identity. So, when Timothy came under Paul's teaching, because he was a Jew, Paul had him circumcised as an adult, as a young adult. But Titus, who was a complete Greek, (laughs) had no Jewish blood in him. He did not circumcise. And, you know, you ask, why? And apparently, it became a test case. It became an example. This whole thing with Paul's ministry is that he's bringing the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying in his ministry, the ministry of the finished work of the Lord Jesus applies equally to the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Those who are circumcised, the Jews who are subject to the law and receive Jesus, receive Jesus, and it supersedes all that has happened in the law, but it doesn't undo their circumcision. The Greeks who come to faith don't need to be circumcised. And so, When they went to Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 2 in this meeting that he tells about, where he took Barnabas, who was his partner on his first missionary journey, by the way, and Titus, his young protege, apparently part of the reason for that journey to Jerusalem in getting the approval of the apostles for the gospel he was preaching, apparently part of that included taking Titus along, the uncircumcised Greek believer, and not even the Jews in Jerusalem who were the head of the church named later in the chapter, John, Cephas, and James, they didn't even think Titus needed to be circumcised. So, everything Paul was teaching was affirmed, and Titus, the test case, was exhibit A. Greeks don't have to be circumcised. Now, this is before the events that we read about later in this chapter. So, it's interesting that this was a very early problem. And apparently, as Paul is preaching to the Gentiles, the Jewish believers who hear about him and see what he's doing become upset because he's not bringing them into Judaism. He's not requiring that they be circumcised. And so, he leads in this chapter with the story of having taken Titus with him and Barnabas to Jerusalem. His gospel was affirmed, and Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. 
which is a direct contrast to these new teachers who are coming in, these Judaizers who don't have the backing of these well-respected Jewish apostles. They, they don't know Judaism like Paul knew Judaism. Yeah. They don't have the public conversion story. They don't have the testimony of having once persecuted the church and now preaching the gospel. Paul has everything on his side for these Galatians to believe him. There's no reason for them to question Paul. And he, like a great apologist, is just laying down one reason after another, after another, for them to see that that they have no business listening to these false That's a teachers. Great point. I love that comparison, like a great apologist. That's exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And that's another reason why Paul continually cited his right to be called an apostle. He had been called by the Lord Jesus, and he had been taught by the Lord Jesus. You know, I found it interesting. This takes us back a little bit one verse, but I found it interesting that he went to them in private for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Isn't that interesting? To me, it was a picture of almost vulnerability. It was the evidence that Paul is this great apostle who was called by God and gifted by God and had a revelation, and yet Paul needed Peter. Yes. The church needs the church. And the Lord set it up that way so that we're a body. Yeah. And the Lord sent him. He's like, "Mm, you need to go talk to Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You need to go talk to Peter. (laughs) That's such an interesting thing. And it's really interesting, especially in light of what happens later in the chapter. Yeah, it is. The Lord provided Peter for Paul. And then later we're going to see how the Lord provided Paul for Peter. Yeah. It's a very interesting example of the way the body of Christ works. And it makes me think of that text in Hebrews 3, 10, where it says, um, exhort one another daily as Mm -hmm. long as it is called today so that no one is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And Paul was concerned about that. He was getting criticism and the Lord directed him to go and talk to Peter. The other thing that I really appreciate about having this example in scripture is so often we can get hard on people like Peter or even John the Baptist, who at the end of his life was like, are you the one? And he he recognized him in his mother's womb. He had that wilderness ministry. He knew who it was. God told him in an audible voice, this is my son. That's true. He knew who he was, but he had that moment. Paul had a revelation from God. He was given and taught the gospel by God. And yet he says he went to them in private for fear he'd been running in vain. Peter had had the vision of the animals that came down on on the blanket. And yet we have this situation that we're going to be looking at later in the chapter. We see that being a believer and being a leadership in the church doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect or that you're always going to have that unwavering confidence in what you have known to be true. And so it gives us all of the evidence we need, in my opinion, that we need to be in the body. We need to engage with the body. That's such a great point. We have doubts. Mm -hmm. Life comes, hormones change, illness (laughs) hits. We have doubts. Yeah, It's the one another's. It's the body of Christ that prays for us and assures us and exhorts us and reminds us to go to the Word. Mm -hmm. And I can't overemphasize that. I know, Nikki, we talk about this all the time, but the bottom line is the Word of God. And do you see how this example in Galatians 2 is an example from the Word of God that says, number one, 
God does tell us the truth. And number two, God gives us people to support us, and we're supposed to thank Him for that and take advantage of what He brings to us through other people. Yeah, we have to trust His Word. We have to trust Him. And, you know, one of the things that I struggled with in Adventism as I began to question it was how could this many people really be wrong, though? Oh, I wondered that, too. There are so many people who believe this. How can I be so arrogant to think that all those people are wrong? But you know what? We can look at human history, and we know that groups have been collectively deceived. That's really not an argument that we can stand with. And, And even here, Paul is, wait a minute. You know, he didn't waver. He didn't give in to them even for one hour. I love that. I do too. (laughs) He didn't give in to them, but he needed to go and have this conversation. And God told him to. Yeah. He had a revelation. Yeah. He needed this. And, And so we can see how deception, like you said, we need each other so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We can't look around and go, oh, well, everyone else here in Galatia thinks it's true. And even if it's unpopular and puts us against people that are of reputation, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to know what God's word to us is, what he has said, what the gospel is, and we don't waver. Another thing that's interesting when Paul is talking to them, he calls them false brothers. Yes. I hear people sometimes, and they did this in Adventism too, I hear people give these guys the benefit of the doubt. Oh, that's a great point. You know, maybe they were just confused. They needed to be corrected. But Paul's very clear in this letter. He calls down curses on anyone who teaches a distorted gospel. Yeah. And he calls them very clearly false brothers here. I don't think we can give them the benefit of the doubt. There are true believers who are tangled up in moralism and legalism who need help untangling. But that's not actually what we're dealing with here. We're talking about a false, distorted, hetero gospel. Yes. And teachers who are intentionally coming in, spying out their freedom and seeking to yoke them to it. I think that the people in Galatia that this letter is being written to, even Peter himself, are examples of those true believers who are being entangled in something false or deceptive. Mm -hmm. But these false teachers, these false brothers, were hurting the body. They were wolves in sheep's clothing, I think. Yeah. Just from the way Paul talks, he cut them no slack. And the way that Paul responds to that when he says that they didn't yield in subjection even for an hour, the end of that sentence, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you, he understands that compromise can hurt the gospel witness. That is supreme in his life. You know, that's something that that I think, especially in the times we're living in right now, there's there are a lot of changes in Christianity. There are a lot of changes in the church. People are moving away from Bible teaching. Yeah. And so guarding that gospel and guarding our gospel witness is so supremely important. We can follow Paul's example here when we think about what we're willing to entertain. I also think it's interesting in six verses six and seven, where he talked about the fact that he refers to the men in Jerusalem when he had gone there. He says, those who were of high reputation, and then in parentheses, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. He's not dissing the apostles by saying this. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is the fact that they had titles did not make them more knowledgeable than him. Now, he had the title too, Mm -hmm. 
even though his title was sometimes questioned. But his point is, he knew the gospel. He has just preceded that verse with the one you referred to, where he didn't give an inch so the gospel would remain with you. He's saying, these men didn't correct my gospel. They didn't correct my teaching. They didn't contribute anything that I had been leaving out. He goes on to say they affirmed completely what he had been teaching. The Lord knew he needed to have this interaction for a couple of reasons, I believe. One was to give him utter confidence as he kept encountering the criticism. And the second one was so that the brethren in Jerusalem would not have doubts about him. And I think that was part of the reason that the Lord sent him. Yeah, and look at it, it's in his eternal word. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't their position that made their affirmation important. It was the fact that they were God's appointed apostles as he was an appointed apostle. And this whole section ends with Cephas, John, and James, James being the brother of Jesus, who was actually the head of the church in Jerusalem, the one who wrote the epistle of James, these three men giving him the right hand of fellowship, which meant you're a brother with us. This right hand of fellowship was significant because it established publicly that the head of the church in Jerusalem was acknowledging Paul as one of them. Wherever he went, he had that affirmation, he could refer to it, and they also knew him. It was a it was an official acknowledgement that he was one of them. You know, what's so interesting to me about this is in Adventism, when I was at, specifically at La Sierra University, and I heard a lot of commentary about how arrogant Paul was, <laughs> you know, this verse, verse six, I can almost hear their eyes rolling. What they were makes no difference to me. You know, that kind of commentary interpreted through today's culture seemed arrogant to them. Mm -hmm. And that was where their emphasis sat. Yes. When they would go through this passage, that's where they would focus. Like, oh, Paul. I used to feel that way about that verse too. I didn't know what to make of it. It did sound arrogant to me. Well, but what's really interesting is these are the same people who say that there were all these different gospel emphasis. John's gospel, and Mark and Luke and Matthew, they all had a different point. Yeah. Well, the fact that he got the right hand of fellowship from the one Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom is incredible evidence that his gospel was consistent with all of the other apostles' teachings. That's so important. But it gets missed in the eye rolls. <laughs> yes, it does. It's interesting to me that Adventists, like I was actually, get stuck on the apparent arrogance, the apparent superiority of Paul that would say, oh, it makes no difference to me, um, the gospel I preach, my gospel, all these statements of ownership of the gospel and defending his apostleship, I always thought that sounded arrogant. And it's interesting that from a perspective of teaching a false gospel, as Adventists do, they see the declarations of the man who was like the outsider who'd been brought in. He was a Jew, to be sure, but he wasn't one of the twelve. He hadn't walked with Jesus in his life on earth before he was dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended. Paul came later. In a sense, to those twelve apostles, he was an outsider who the Lord Jesus brought to them. And I'd like to say to these Adventists who look and do the eye rolls, how would you feel if the Lord met you and said, you know what? You've been teaching wrong. You've been teaching the law wrong. 
And I'm going to now show you what's true. And now I'm going to walk you over to some very important friends of mine that have spent the last three years with me, and I've appointed them to take this same gospel to the world. People are going to question whether you really have a right to belong with them. You know, what would you eye rollers do if that happened to you? And I look at this and see Paul is making a case for what the Lord has given him to do. He's not arrogant. He's actually very humble the way he went to Jerusalem at the Lord's command, presented Titus as an example and said, what do you say? And they all agreed. He was teaching the true gospel. This was a huge moment for him. This was his acceptance into the circle of the apostles. And that comment was very consistent with other teaching. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? He's consistently made the point that we don't make much of human teachers. We make much of the gospel. Yeah, It's almost like he's name dropping because he needs to. He needs them to know he has the trust and the backing of the leaders in Israel. These Jews, they're sneaking in. These are false brothers. They're from another root system. They're not even a part of us. They're not in the family tree. And so they're sneaking in and they're telling you they have the better interpretation. You're being led astray. He opened Galatians by saying that he received his calling and his gospel from God himself. And so to say, they didn't add to me. I came from God to them. And he says in verse 9 that they recognized the grace that had been given to Paul. They knew that his work and his gifting was from God. They recognized their Lord in Paul's message and his teaching, in the power that he brought to the gospel. So this isn't a point of arrogance. This is saying, they recognize with me that my authority came from God. And that authority isn't something he lords over us. No, It's something that he takes very seriously. And that's something the Lord did. This is why the Lord gave him the revelation to go. God affirmed to the apostles in Jerusalem, God affirmed to Paul that they were all on the same page. They were all teaching what he had revealed to them, and they were to work as one, but in different fields. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Verse 9 also says, they gave them the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Mm -hmm. So what is he saying here? He was commissioned to go to the Gentiles by God and by Peter. Yes, by God and affirmed by Peter. That's so interesting. You know, it's it's significant that we talk about Peter having the keys to the kingdom. And I'm realizing as an Adventist, I didn't understand what that meant. Can you kind of summarize Absolutely. that? Absolutely. That's a really important point that we didn't learn as Adventists. And it starts where Jesus said to Peter, to you, I'm going to give the keys of the kingdom. Now, we know that there is a large religion in the world that say that means that Peter was the first pope. Mm-hmm. Now, that's clearly not what Jesus is saying. But as we move into Acts, we learn what he did mean. <laughs> Before Jesus ascended in Acts 1, he said in his last words to the disciples before he ascended, this is Acts 1, 7 and 8, he said, when they asked him if this was when he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel, he said, it's not for you to know times or epochs. 
which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here it is. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, the interesting thing, that just sounds like throwaway words to most of us who came out of Adventism. It's like, yeah, 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 the gospel goes to the whole world. But what was interesting that was in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost came, after all the disciples had been praying, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them, and they preached. And Peter preached that memorable sermon in Acts 2, and 3,000 Jews were converted that day. The gospel went first to Jerusalem. And then we find in the next couple of chapters of Acts that the disciples are preaching daily, basically. And people from all over the world had been in Jerusalem for Pentecost. They had been preaching in Jerusalem. They preached throughout Judea, which is the southern part of Israel. Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel. And the the story of all of the growth of the church in the very early stages among the Jews, we find in Acts 2 through, essentially, Acts 7. And then in Acts 8, we come to another part of the story. In Acts 8, we come to the Samaritans, where Philip has been preaching to them, and Peter is called to come. And he comes to the Samaritans, and he says, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, "Um, no, we've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son. And so, he baptized them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they all spoke in tongues, as had the Jews in Acts 2. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had said, Jerusalem, Judea, (laughs) Samaria. It's right in order. (laughs) Acts 8. And then we come to Acts 10, when Peter receives that vision from God with the sheet that goes back up to heaven three times, filled with every unclean creature on earth, and he's told to kill and eat. And of course, Adventists say that's just about saying Gentiles aren't unclean. But the fact is, Peter was being asked at that moment, at the door, were the representatives from Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and he was being asked to go to Cornelius's house. And we know that Jews didn't eat with Gentiles because of the food laws, the food restrictions. And God had just told Peter, do not call unclean what I have declared clean. He made him, essentially. He said, you go with these men and you go to Cornelius's house. And it says in Acts 10, he spent several days there. He had to eat. Mm-hmm. So, he was eating Gentile food off of Gentile dishes, eating in a Gentile home with Gentiles, and they received the Holy Spirit when he preached to them, and they spoke in tongues. And it was then that Peter said, who can refuse them the right to be baptized? The keys to the kingdom, if you want to see it this way, and it looks very clear to me, it's in the order Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the rest of the world, the Gentiles, and God provided an apostolic eyewitness to all three people groups, the Jews, the Samaritans, who were half-breeds between the Jews and the Canaanites, and the Gentiles of receiving the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way, even though their backgrounds were different. So, to have Peter, who held the keys to the kingdom, who was present when the first Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, commissioned Paul to go to the Gentiles, you see this handing off in a way. It's really significant. 
So Peter and James and John giving Paul the right hand of fellowship is a really significant thing. It continues to be significant. When Christians extend the right hand of fellowship to other groups, they need to be sure that the gospel they're preaching is the same gospel. We see a lot of churches giving Seventh-day Adventism the right hand of fellowship, and it cuts people off from the true gospel because it implies we believe the same thing. John said in 2 John chapter 1, verses 9-11, to Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or it could have meant church. Mm-hmm. And do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. It was really important in the church that the message was the same before you extended the right hand of fellowship. The apostles demanded, make sure the teaching is the same, or you take part in their evil works. I'll never forget an FAF conference years ago when Paul Carden spoke on Friday night. And in his talk, he said, Christians need to be careful of exactly what you said, Nikki. He said, you cannot participate in ministry with Seventh-day Adventism because Seventh-day Adventism does not teach the true gospel. So, when you think about community outreaches and music programs for the community and you name it, health clinics, of course, you may be doing the same thing. You may be, you may have the welfare of people in your heart, but the fact that Adventists want to partner with Christians in doing these things is a form of deception. It doesn't mean that they're not good at their medical stuff. It does mean that you're not presenting the same gospel. And Adventists use these kinds of connections as proselytizing tools to get people into their religion. And the Christian may think that they're witnessing to the Adventists by partnering or by singing in their church or whatever. But I want to say, in most cases, in general, you have to know that Adventists don't see it the same way. They see it as a public statement that we're just like you. We're okay. And see, even so-and-so partners with us, so we're okay. Don't worry. And it's a deception. So finally, when James, John, and Cephas give Paul the right hand of fellowship, bringing him fully into the community of the apostles, preaching the gospel, saying, you go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jews. This was the way God had commissioned it to be. They end by saying, what? They just ask them to remember the poor. Isn't that an interesting thing? Mm -hmm. Teach the gospel and remember the poor. I find this to be kind of fascinating, Nikki, because Jesus even said, you know, the poor you will always have with you. He never said, you're going to go wipe out poverty, but he said, remember the poor. Now, when he's talking about the poor, who is he specifically meaning? The poor in general or the poor in the churches? In the churches. Yes, it seems to be that that is the first concern, because throughout his epistles, we read of Paul taking up collections from the various churches for the suffering Christians in other churches, particularly in Jerusalem where there had been a famine. It's not that the unbelieving poor are to be ignored, but Paul has always made a consistent effort 
to meet the needs of the believing poor first, because they're part of the family, part of the body. And then the body of Christ ministers to the world around them. And it's a little bit like the airplane. Put on your own oxygen mask first before you put on your child's, because you'll all die if you get it wrong. Mm -hmm. We take care of the body. We take care of the poor. We make sure that our fellow brothers and sisters have enough to eat, and then we can work to bring the gospel to the unbelievers. So, as we end this first section of chapter two, I just want to ask everybody listening to evaluate what is it that you believe? What do you say the gospel is? Do you understand? Have you believed that Jesus died for your sins according to scripture? that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And have you trusted him? Have you cast your lot with him? Have you laid yourself at his mercy, your sins at the foot of his cross, and accepted the finished work of Jesus' atonement for your sin? And if you haven't, this is the time to do it. The Lord's command is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you do, you will know the new birth because the Lord will adopt you and give you spiritual life and indwell you with His Spirit. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view past and current online articles and to sign up for weekly emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. You can also find a place there to donate to Life Assurance Ministries if you'd like to come alongside us with your financial support. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, and we'd love for you to leave a review wherever you listen. Join us next week as we examine chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, when Paul confronts Peter. And we'll see you then. Mm -hmm.